I hope that you've enjoyed the messages out of this uh, incredible little book. We finally broke through chapter 1. I know you thought we never would, but now we're in chapter 2, and here we are. I want to talk to you today on the topic of charting spiritual growth. So what do you want to be when you grow up? Every child, it seems, is asked that, and every child has a different answer. If you ask my seven-year-old son, Daniel, what he wants to be when he grows up, he won't stop very long to tell you that he wants to be a trash truck driver because people need their trash picked up. And my four-year-old Abigail, little girl, she wants to work in an ice cream store one day because everybody loves ice cream. Amen? I'm told that in the Far East there is a tradition where parents keep up this superstition to determine the destiny of their child. And the superstition goes like this. On the child's third birthday, they lay before the child three objects. An empty wine bottle, some cash, and a Bible. And the superstition goes that depending on what the child chooses, it will foretell the destiny of that young life. So if the child walks over to the table and picks up the bottle, well, watch out, parents, that means a life of hedonism and dissipation are coming. A life of rebellion. If the child goes after the cash, that's a sign that the child will be prosperous. So no matter what they choose, whether business or medicine or law or whatever they go into in life, they will be prosperous. And then if the child goes after the Bible, then they're destined to be a man or woman of spiritual fervor and religious devotion. Well, I heard that one time there was this superstition, this observance going on on a child's uh, third birthday, and the mom and dad had laid before the objects there on the table. The, they were waiting as the child tottered up to the table and looked very uh, cautiously, uh, very intently at all three, and then proceeded to go after the bottle. And then the baby picked up the cash and uh, stuffed it in its pants, and then picked up the Bible and folded it under its arm and walked away. And the mom was shaking her head, and the dad said, Oh, no, honey. And she said, What does this mean? He said, It can only mean one thing. He's going to grow up to be a politician one day. <laughs> Speaking of politicians, there is a story about James Garfield. Before he became the 20th president of the United States, he was the dean of Hiram College in Ohio. And it is said that a father came to Mr. Garfield and asked that his son's course of study be simplified and expedited so that he might graduate in a shorter time. And as Garfield listened to the request of this father, he said, well, certainly... But I just need to know one thing. You see, it all depends on what you want your boy to be. We can shorten his time here at school, but you should know that when God wants to make an oak tree, He takes a hundred years, and when God wants to make a squash, He only takes three months. And I thought that was a pretty good response, because when we talk about growth, and we talk about growing in the Lord spiritually, friend, there are no shortcuts. And that's true not just physically, but also spiritually. And it, it has been said that the church is like a maternity ward where people are born into the family of God. And I would add to that, yes, that is true. However, uh, 
The downside is there are too many who never make it out of the spiritual nursery. Unfortunately, they stay spiritual babes long beyond what they should, and they never really reach that maturity in Christ. Now, in spiritual growth, you need to understand that God uses a different measuring stick to chart our progress. How exactly do you measure spiritual growth? Well, spiritual maturity is not measured necessarily by our age or our ability. You can be chronologically old and spiritually an infant. If you've never developed that spiritual life through prayer and through devotion and through participating in the church, you may be up in your years and yet spiritually a babe in Christ. Likewise, on the other hand, you can be spiritually gifted, you can have ability, and yet still be immature. Think of Samson, a man in the Old Testament, one of the judges, who was anointed, gifted by God to be the ruler and the leader of his people, and yet, boy, was he spiritually immature. So, from our first steps of faith to our final breaths here on earth, our spiritual journey should be marked by growth. And while we may never, quote-unquote, arrive in the spiritual life, we should all be striving to be more like Jesus. Now, generally, there's three rules about spiritual growth that I have noticed. First off, I would say that spiritual growth is intentional, and then it's incremental, and then it's incarnational. By intentional, I mean that we have a part to play. We have to decide we want to grow spiritually. God will do His part, but we have to get our nose in the book. We have to pray. We have to participate in the life of the church. It doesn't just happen magically by sitting on a pew. You have to be intentional about your spiritual growth. You get out of it what you put into it. Spiritual growth is also incremental. The growth sometimes comes slowly. You may go through a season where you grow very rapidly and then you may go through a season where it seems to eke on and you're in a dry spot in life. But daily, monthly, yearly, we grow incrementally. And then lastly, I would say that it's incarnational. And what that means is that we grow more like Jesus and less like ourselves. John the Baptist had it right. I must decrease so that He might increase. Becoming more like Christ. Now at the beginning here of Colossians 2, Paul expresses his great desire for this church that he's writing to continue on in spiritual growth. And he identifies at least three areas where we can all continue to grow, no matter our age or our ability, in this life with Christ. So, look at this measuring tape. There's three areas on this where we can examine ourselves according to Scripture, and see how we are charting in our spiritual growth. How do we do this? Well, number one, if you're reading with me, I want you to notice growing corporately in our love. The first area of spiritual growth, growing corporately in our love. Now notice verses 1 and 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have had for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together, here it is, in love 
to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Now keep in mind, as we pointed out earlier on, that Paul had never been to Colossae. And yet, he was burdened greatly for these people as if he was their pastor. Now look at the word there, struggle, in our text. It's taken from the athletic arena. Verse 1, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have had for you. And anybody who's been in the ministry knows what that struggle is all about. Amen? Now that word struggle... Uh, it means to agonize. And Paul agonized over the well-being of these believers in the same way that a runner would exert himself in a sprint. And Paul is saying, look, I have shed spiritual sweat on your behalf. I'm in your corner. I've worried about you. I've thought about you. I've prayed about you. And let me tell you, any pastor whose worth is salt will agonize over the flock. They'll wonder, is so-and-so growing in the Lord, or have they backslid? Uh, we get worried about when folk fall out of church, and we try and keep up with everybody through phone calls and through technology. And any pastor who really loves their flock will agonize over the growth of their people. They want to see their people moving forward rather than backward. They want to see their people growing in holiness, growing in grace, and growing in love. Can I say to you uh, this morning, church, I'm not a perfect pastor. I'm not the greatest preacher. I'm not the smartest. I don't have all the answers. But I can tell you this, I care. And I agonize with Paul in this passage over the flock. You know, one lame excuse that I have always heard as long as I have been in ministry is, well, I don't go to church, but I do believe in God. I'm saved. But I can stay at home and read my Bible. I don't need the church. Have you ever heard that before? Friend, let me clue you into something this morning. If you love Jesus, then you'll love what Jesus loves, and Jesus loves the church. And besides, it's going to be impossible to grow in your love, not only of sinners, but of other believers, if you're never around them. You see, the church is a laboratory of love where God teaches us to love sacrificially in the way that He loved us, and we learn how to love others who don't look like us, don't think like us, don't come from the same side of the railroad tracks as us, but we're united by the Spirit of God and the Son of God, and God brings this people together to learn how to love. How do we do that? How do we grow in our love corporately? Well, Paul gives two ways here. Look here in verse 2. Notice this, love builds others up. See what he said there in verse 2? He said, that their hearts may be encouraged. I think every church needs encouragement. Every saint of God needs to be encouraged at some point in their spiritual life because out there in the world, out there uh, where Christians are beat up, where life is hard, I'm telling you, the church needs to be a place, a refuge where we can come and be built up and encouraged by the saints. Sometimes church folk try to be encouraging, but it doesn't really come out that way. Heard about a, an elderly couple who had been faithfully attending a church for all their life and Recently, the, the couple had had a downturn in health. The husband started to slip mentally. He was suffering from dementia. 
And one Sunday as this couple left the church, they were shaking the pastor's hand. And the wife spoke on behalf of the husband and she said, Pastor, I just want you to know that your sermons have meant so much to my husband since he lost his mind. <laughs> it came out that way. It wasn't really encouragement, but that was the, the intention behind it. Friend, listen to me. You may not be a preacher. You may not be a Sunday school teacher or a deacon or a musician, but you know what you can be according to this? You can be an encourager. It doesn't cost anything to be an encourager. It costs you nothing, and yet it can mean everything to the person who is struggling. It's been said, look at this on the screen, encouragement is often the difference between giving up and going on. And how many of you have trudged through a week or several days of hardship, and you feel as if you want to give up spiritually, you don't see God's hand, there isn't spiritual growth, but yet out of sheer duty you come to the house of God, and some saint hugs your neck, gives you a card, does something that uplifts your spirit, and they just don't understand how valuable that was to you at that moment. I'm telling you, it's the difference between going on and giving up. You know what would change the spirit in any church? If we, if you, if I took it upon myself each week to encourage five people in the church through a call, through a card, through a text message, through a Facebook message or whatever, encourage somebody in the Lord. Amen. It would change the spirit in a church. Love builds. And then, also notice this, love bonds us together. Love bonds us together. Notice that next phrase in verse 2, being knit together in love. You get the idea of a, of a grandmother knitting together a quilt or a scarf or something of that, knit together in love. You know, you can enter a church and in just a few minutes, I've never set foot in that church before. If I'm a stranger, I can walk into a church and I can tell immediately whether there's love or whether the Holy Spirit is being quenched. If you have any type of spiritual maturity, any type of spiritual radar within you, you can set foot in a church and immediately know this is a good place or there's tension here. How do you know? Well, you notice how people interact with each other. If there's love there, there's laughter, there's hugging, there's fellowship, there's excitement over what God is going to do that day in your midst. You just don't know, but you feel within you that God's got a word for you, uh, that the preacher's going to encourage you, that a song's going to touch you. And friend, it, it bonds you together. As you love one another and you go through the adversity of life, as you go through cancer and you go through death and you go through financial hardship, you link arms with a fellow believer and say, I know the way's long and hard, but you don't have to go by yourself. I'm walking with you through it. And it binds you together as you go through the Christian life. Oh, but friend, I'm telling you, there's nothing more stifling than when you walk into a church body and there's acrimony, and there's division, and there's gossip and backbiting. It's like Hatfields on one side and McCoys on the other. The only way to solve it is you've got to go to the altar, and you've got to pray, and you've got to repent. You know, we should add to this what Jesus said. 
He said in John 13, 35, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Here's my goal for Liberty Baptist Church. Now listen to me. There will always be another church out there that has better music, that has newer and nicer facilities. There will always be another church out there with a more slick and better preacher. But I am going to tell you what we can do. We may not be the biggest, baddest, and best, but what we can be number one in church is loving people. Let that be our mandate. To love one another and to love sinners. You know, churches can get a reputation in the community really quick, can't they? You know how it goes. Uh, Don't go down there to that church. That, that, That folk down there, they're the holy rollers. You better be ready to stay for a long time because they're, they're the charismatics and, and they like to hoot and holler and get crazy and, and there's a place for that and I'm thankful f- to God for that. Then there's a, a, the reputation doctrinally. Well, these folk down here, they're real serious. They're the Calvinists. They don't, unless you're a five-pointer, don't even think about setting foot in there because you're going to get drowned in all kinds of doctrine. There's a place for that, and praise God, we do need to be doctrinally deep and understand the Scripture. I'm going to talk about that more in a minute. Then there's also uh, the reputation that some churches get. Uh, don't go down there to the independent uh, place. Uh, they're legalistic. Are you dressed right? Is your hair right? Are you carrying the right Bible? Are you singing from the right hymn book? And they'll slap you with all kinds of man-made rules. Am I preaching this morning to anybody or, or what? You know what? I want our reputation to be here in this community. Uh, Those folk down there at Liberty, they really do love sinners. They really did love me in my time of need. They really did wrap their arms around me and help me when I needed it the most. Uh, God help us to be a church that loves folk. It doesn't mean we compromise the truth or we we, we, uh, water down doctrine, but we love folk. As God has called us to be. This ought to be a Holy Ghost hospital where anybody can come in broken as they are, dirty, of every skin color, of every sexual orientation, homeless, smelly, addicted. You let them come in here and get a dose of the Holy Spirit of God and feel what the love of God is like and it will change somebody's life. Friend, we don't need to look at folk through eyes of condemnation, but through eyes of restoration, knowing that's a soul that Jesus died for. He bled for them, and therefore, I must love them as Christ loved them. Several years ago, we had an open time of invitation, and a man came forward. I won't mention his name. A man came forward. He was broken, he was a mess. He was weeping. He came down. I asked him, I said, Sir, why have you come forward today? You know what he told me? I'll never forget it as long as I live. He said, Preacher, he said, I was planning on killing myself today. He said, Preacher, I was going to commit suicide, but for some reason I'm here today. Can you help me? Do you have any hope? Friend, I tell you that story, not to shame anybody or make anybody feel bad, but if we only knew how close somebody was to giving in to total despair, we would come to church with a different set of eyes. With love in our heart, realizing this is a salvation station. 
where somebody is on the brink of giving up and giving in. And we may be the last line of defense between them and an eternity without Christ. God help us to grow corporately in our love. Then notice this number two, growing intellectually in our learning. Growing intellectually in our learning. Not only do we grow by the love we show, but also by the wisdom we know. You see, the reality is, there's many Christians who have given their heart to Christ, but they haven't given Him their mind. Remember what Jesus said, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven: 37, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and watch this, with all your, say it church, mind. Jesus wants our heart to be connected to our head. And notice the balance of this passage. Paul just talked about love. Now he talks about truth or learning. You see, you have to be balanced as a Christian between truth and love. If we are all love and no truth, that leads to liberalism, which softens the gospel. And if we are all truth and no love, that leads to legalism, which hardens the gospel. But a mature Christian has a balance between love and learning, truth and love. Now, Paul speaks about measuring our spiritual growth by increasing our understanding in three ways. Notice what he says, verse 3. He says, In whom we are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then back up to verse 2, he says, Knit together with love to reach all the riches, watch this, of full assurance of understanding. Full assurance of understanding. That's the phrase. One of the ways that we can grow in our learning, write this down, is a definite knowledge of Christ. A definite knowledge of Christ. Full assurance of understanding. You know, one of the most vexing problems a Christian can have is the assurance of their salvation. Rather than being shouting Christians, they're doubting Christians. Rather than having a no-so salvation, they have what you might call a hope-so salvation. Their question marks with their heads bent over rather than exclamation points standing up tall and saying, I know in whom I have believed. I like what Adrian Rogers said about this. He said, if you could have it and not know it, you could lose it and not miss it. Speaking of assurance of salvation. Now, in my experience, there's three kind of folk who fall into this category. There are those who are saved but not sure. They're doubting. There are those who are sure, but not saved. Those are the deceived. And then thirdly, there are those who are decided. That's what God wants us to be. They are saved and they're sure. How can we have full assurance of our understanding? Well, there's several tests that we can apply to ourselves in the New Testament. The reason why this is important, friend, is because if you're a pastor very long, or if you're in a church very long, you'll have folk... Come down to rededicate their life. Rededicate their life. I'm here to get saved. I'm here to get rededicated. And, and they do it over and over and over and over again. And there's nothing wrong with laying your heart on the altar. But friend, it has to come a point when you understand what salvation is and that you really do know that you know that you're saved. Or you'll never be able to live a victorious Christian life. How do we have assurance? Well, four tests real quick. 
How about this? A confession test, Acts 16.31. What must I do, the jailer said to Paul, to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that your confession? Do you confess that Jesus Christ alone is Lord and Savior? Not church attendance. Not because my granddaddy and grandma built the church. Not because my uncle was a preacher. But because I recognize that He is who He said He was and He is the Son of God. A confession test. How about a change test? 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone be in Christ, they are a what? New creation. There ought to be a change in your life. How you think, how you live, how you operate. Is there a noticeable change in your life? How about a companion test? Romans 8 and 17 says that the Spirit of God dwells within us and cries out, Abba, Father, if you truly are born again and you understand salvation, the Spirit of God who lives and uh, has residence in you will speak. Sometimes very loudly and profoundly, especially when you're about to get off track, do you feel conviction over sin? Do you feel the stirring of the Spirit in a worship service? I'm not talking about just emotionalism. I'm talking about the Spirit of God literally breaking you down and ruining your world because you understand who God is. Do you feel that companion, the Holy Spirit, as He deals with your heart? How about this last one, a compassion test? Do you have love for God's people? I heard a story about a pastor's son who had made a profession of faith and he was all of a sudden struggling whether he was really saved or not. He was having incredible doubts. The devil was riding him. If you've been there before, you know what that's all about. The pastor, he told his son, he said, Son, you're going to have to search this out on your own. I can't fix it for you, son. He said, you're going to have to ask the Lord to assure your heart. Well, pastor and son had that conversation. The next morning, the son came down. His dad asked him about it. He said, well, son, what did, what did you do? Did you get things right with the Lord? He said, Dad, I did. Had a big smile on his face. He said, son, what did you do? He said, Dad, last night I opened my Bible. And I read 1 John 5, 12. And there it says, He who has the Son has life, and he who has not the Son has not life. And I read that verse out loud, and I said, There it is, devil. Read it for yourself. And he got full assurance of understanding. A definite knowledge of Christ. The next measuring stick, a deep knowledge of Christ. We can grow not only in our assurance our definite knowledge, but a deep knowledge. Notice verse 3. In whom? That's Christ. In Christ are hidden, watch this, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You know, we live in the so-called information age, don't we? Where they tell us that since 1900, human knowledge has doubled approximately every century. They say that by the end of World War II, knowledge was doubling every 25 years. And then today, knowledge is doubling every 13 months. And they say in the next decade, with the onset of greater internet, it's projected that the human knowledge will double every 12 hours. We may be getting smarter, but friend, I don't see a lot of spiritual wisdom in our culture. When we can't make the distinction between who should go in a male and a female bathroom, we don't know anything. We need to go back to school and study the basics. 
Google may be amassing data by the terabyte, and we think that we're smart, but the truth is, friend, man's knowledge doesn't even fit into a thimble compared to the infinite knowledge of Christ. Vance Havner, the great preacher of years ago, said this. He said, quote, How often scholars ransack libraries looking for the secrets of the sages while the janitor may have found it long ago by the way of the cross. Friend, I've been to the university and I'm thankful for that experience. I've sat under the teaching of some truly brilliant minds. But friend, I don't care if they have an alphabet of letters behind their name. If they don't know Jesus Christ, they don't really have knowledge and wisdom. I have known brilliant people who are absolute fools because they reject Christ and His gospel. And yet I have known uneducated saints who didn't even finish sixth grade, but they had a depth of spirit about them. They knew how to get a hold of God. They knew how to pray. They had memorized, underlined, and cried on their Bible. And they had found the storehouse of treasure and wisdom that man is so searching for, but doesn't have eyes to see that it is none other than Jesus Christ. Oh, friend, you may have a doctorate or a master's, but you're not truly wise until you know Christ. Proverbs 1-7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of of wisdom, even the humblest saint has more access to knowledge and wisdom than even the most learned scholar in our world. I think I just might stop here and preach just a little bit if you're okay about it. I don't know very much about cosmology, but oh, I know the one who started it all. All things were made in Him and through Him and for Him. Uh, He was the big banger. Uh, He started it all. His name is Jesus Christ. I don't know a whole lot about astronomy, but I do know the one who goes by the name the bright and morning star. He's the one who flung out the planets and the stars who hung it all into place and by the word of His power He keeps this earth spinning in the warmth of the sun. I've tried to learn history but I really didn't understand it until I met the one who divides history between B.C. and A.D. in the beginning was the Word. I'm not an expert in biology, but I do know the one who said I am the resurrection and the life, and He can put life into a corpse, and He can raise the saints from their grave. I don't know much about chemistry, but I am a friend of the one who turned the water into wine. That's one that the scientists can't even figure out today. I can't predict the weather. I'm not much of a meteorologist, but I do know the one who can walk across the seas and who spoke a word and calmed the raging winds. I can't cook, bless God. I've got a precious wife who can. I don't know much about culinary arts, but I can tell you about the one who fed the 5,000 one day, breaking up those fishes and loaves. Twelve baskets left over, praise God. I don't know language very much. 
I'm not into linguistics, but I know the one who's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Uh, I can't tell you much about zoology, but I have been to the Bible and I know the one who's the Lamb of God and the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Friend, I, I, I'm not a politician. I, I don't run in those circles, but I know the one whom the Bible says one day every king is going to bow at his knees. Every tongue will confess that he's Lord of lords and King of kings. Uh, when you talk about time, he's the one who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. In him are all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom. If you get him, you get it all, friend. There's a classic Christian book that was wrote years ago called Playing Marbles with Diamonds. Great book. If you hadn't read it, you need to read it. The title comes from a true story about a geologist who was doing research in South Africa. And as he was doing his research, he came into a humble little village and he saw an incredible sight. True story. The geologist saw a large group of children gathered in a circle on the dusty ground playing a game of marbles. Upon closer inspection, as the geologist got in there, he saw something that absolutely astounded him. These children were dirt poor, and yet they were there playing marbles with diamonds. As he picked one up and he looked at it, he recognized the rarity and the beauty of this thing that they were using as a plaything, as a trinket. And the experience of that geologist actually led him to discover one of the largest diamond mines in the whole world. They started digging and they found that underneath the ground was an incredible storehouse of treasure. And the point of the book is this. Those children who were treating treasure like trinkets below their feet lay a billion dollar fortune if anybody was willing to go dig it out. And friend, I'm wondering if sometimes we don't do that in the church. Are we playing games, treating the treasure of Jesus Christ like religious trinkets? And we go and we come and we do our religious thing and meanwhile we're missing out on the true riches, on the true wisdom that belongs in the person of Christ. And if all we're doing is playing religious games, we're playing marbles with diamonds, we are missing the treasure and the wisdom of, that is in the person of Christ. God help us that we would not treat the deep things of God as if they're just playthings that we pick up once a week when we come in and come out. We also need a discerning knowledge of Christ. A deep knowledge of Christ. A definite knowledge of Christ. A discerning knowledge of Christ. Look at verse 4 very quickly. Won't spend much time on it, but the Bible says this. I say this in order. Watch this. That no one may delude you with plausible arguments. I'm talking about a discerning knowledge. What is discernment? Charles Spurgeon probably had the best definition of all. He said this. Discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's knowing the difference between right and almost right. And as we grow in our spiritual understanding, we ask that God would give us the ability to discern the times and the seasons, discern our culture, discern His Word. 
I need discernment as a parent because this is a wicked and a twisted world that's a lot different than what it was when I was a kid. I need discernment because I'm not smart enough to pastor this church in my own ability. I need discernment to know how to handle certain situations. I need discernment in my life to know how to say things and, and phrase things in this world so that people will see Christ and, and not see me. A discerning knowledge of Christ. You know how bad we are in the church? Listen to this. In 2018, just a few years ago, Lifeway Research did a nationwide survey among evangelicals. That is, people who attended church and identified themselves as Bible believers. They did this poll. Here's what it revealed. 51% polled, these are churchgoers, agreed that God accepted the worship of other religions such as Islam and Hinduism. What about John 14, 6? What about Acts 4, 12? What about 1 Timothy 2, 5? Where's our discernment? 52% agreed that people are basically good and not sinners. We can't even start with anybody if we don't get them to the point to recognize Romans 3, 23. Lastly, look at this. 78%, an astounding 78% of Christians agreed that Jesus was the first and greatest being created by God the Father. Do you know who else agrees with that? The Jehovah's Witnesses. What are we doing in our pulpits? Are we teaching the deep things of the Word of God? Or are we playing marbles with diamonds? What are we doing? The research concluded this. Results show that, watch this, Christians don't know much about the claims of Jesus they say they follow. And then they said there is a general lack of teaching today on the person of Christ, a doctrine for which the early church fought so hard. God strike me dead if I don't preach His gospel. And friend, this is what a cotton candy Christianity, this is what a prosperity gospel and what shallow entertainment-driven churches have produced. You want to know why our world and our culture is so messed up and America can't get it figured out? It's because of the dilution of the gospel. Churches have dropped the ball in preaching the undiluted Word of God. We've got a generation of pastors who are more concerned with being popular than being prophetic and saying, thus saith the Lord. You need discernment. I need discernment because we're living in a world where it's very hard to tell the difference between spiritual aspirin and spiritual arsenic. One will heal you and one will kill you. And this is why sound, systematic preaching of the Bible is necessary in this day of deception because there's so many preachers out there, so-called, who are more concerned with style than substance. They want to be hip. They want to be cool. They want to fit in. They want to put rear ends in seats. They want a high budget. They're building a kingdom in their name. And because of that, I think God is going to say to some of them one day as they stand before Him, what did you do with my bride? Folk who sit under superficial preaching, let me tell you what's going to happen. They'll wither and die when adversity comes. And they'll be easily swayed by the world. Friend, I made a decision a long time ago. I'm here to feed sheep, not entertain goats. 
Number three, and I'm done. Number three, how can we grow? We can grow spiritually in our Lord. Notice verses 5 through 7. For though I am absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. In other words, Paul wraps up this section. He says, Christians aren't to be tumbleweeds blown around by the winds of the world, but they're to be towering timbers rooted in Christ. He compares that spiritual growth to that of a tree with its roots firmly planted. Remember what Psalm 1-3 says? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And in verse 3, he's like a tree planted by the streams of water that yield its fruit in season, and this leaf does not wither. God, make me a man like that. Make me a saint like that. I get my roots down deep into the Word of God and I'll be, so, I'll be so firm in my conviction. I'll be so fruitful in my, my life. and I, I'll be so fulfilled in Christ Jesus that when the winds and the, the turbulence of this world blow and threaten, I just stand for Jesus Christ. That's the kind of Christian I want to be. And I know you do too. Warren Wiersbe said this. He said, Quote, spiritual roots speak about us being grounded in Christ. Establishing the faith speaks of us growing in Christ. And abounding in thanksgiving speaks of our gratitude in Christ. He said a grounded, growing, grateful Christian will not be easily led astray. I finish with this today. You know, the joy of growing in Christ is that it starts the moment we get saved. You don't have to wait, right? You don't have to go to Bible college. You don't have to jump through hoops. The moment you get saved and come to know Christ, you begin growing in Him. And you know what? That process extends all the way through eternity. In Him are all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom. What that means is that We'll have all of eternity to explore the goodness and the grace and the wonderful things about our Savior and we'll never get to the bottom of it. You ever look back on your life and you look at who you used to be, how you thought, the crowd you ran with, the things you used to do, and you look back on that and then you look at where you are today and you got no reason but just to stand and praise God and say, look at how far you have brought me, Lord. Look at where I was and look at how far you have brought me. Now imagine this, friend. Imagine how we have only even begun to touch the hem of His garment here on the earth. And as they sang in the song, I can only imagine where we'll have all of eternity as the ages roll on to grow in our knowledge, our depth, our love of Jesus Christ. Bill Gates or excuse me, Bill Gaither. You know him. He's the famous southern gospel singer. He's the hymn writer. Yeah, big difference between Bill Gates and Bill Gaither. Better get that one right. 
Bill Gaither tells this wonderful story in, in a book that I read of his. He's telling about his mother-in-law. Lady they all called Grandma Hartwell. And he said that Grandma Hartwell ended up becoming like a, a second mother to him. And the, and the day came when her health started to decline. He said that she was a beautiful lady, loved the Lord Jesus Christ, loved to sing and, and, and loved to worship. The day came her health turned against her. She had a debilitating stroke and the time had come for her to go home. He said the family was gathered there around the, the, the bed of Grandma Hartwell. And this was bold. But he, Bill Gaither said that he stepped out and he said, Granny, tell me, you've lived a long time. And I want to know from you, is it really worth it to serve Jesus? He said, me and, and Gloria are just getting started out in our life. And I want to know, has it been worth it serving Jesus all these years? He said that she looked up and with tears streaming down her face, this precious lady said, Billy, the longer I serve him, the sweeter he grows. And then he said, she left this world with the name Jesus on her lips. And friend, I, I don't know how to sum up everything in this passage, but I do know this one thing about growing in Christ. The longer I serve Him, the sweeter He grows. The more close He becomes to me, the more I love Him. And, and, and I can look back and see how far He's brought me. And the longer I serve Him, oh God, I wouldn't trade anything for Jesus Christ. Can you say that today? That's what spiritual growth is all about. 